My name is Wally Triplett, and this is my Penn State football story. We were fortunate in that we were able to uh, live in a community that uh, was um, unique in that it was an integrated community, suburban Philadelphia. But we were the people who serviced the big estates. And so the mistake that was made very often when we gave our address was that people who didn't see us thought that we were, we were, uh, were, were white. I was asked by the University of Miami because of where we lived to, uh, they wanted to give a scholarship. And they wrote me and then I, immediately wrote them back. And when I wrote them back, explaining it, they wrote an apologetic letter. Now, uh, the odd part about that was right after that, I went to Penn State, and on the 1946 schedule was the University of Miami. So the question then came up, well, what are we gonna do about this up at Penn State? trend was throughout the National Collegiate Athletics that the uh, it was agreement that uh, where situations like that arose the uh, school with the black players would not play them against the the southern uh, teams and so uh, when this question came up the uh, fellows immediately uh, said we're going to play all or we're going to play none. So Miami and Penn State canceled that game because it couldn't be. Right after we had the West Virginia game is when the, uh, the voting came up and I can remember Steve Suey saying at the completion of our winning that um, uh, when he was challenged when he said, now that we've won, are we going to have to have these meetings about what to do? And uh, at the time, Steve Suey said simply, we're Penn State. There'll be no meetings. And I said, I learned later on that phrase, we're Penn State, turned into we are Penn State. And uh, it was years later that I'm talking to a, a, uh, a friend of our, ours. And at that time, that simple phrase had been turned into a cheer and had also been developed into uh, almost uh, idolic, as you would say, because they had banners and everything about we are Penn State. I said, but I'll never forget the simple way in which Steve Suey phrased it. Are we going to have to have these meetings again? And he said, uh, we're Penn State. There'll be no meetings. And that was it.
football has had its share of tragedy and scandal this year. However, this year's freshman class gathered at Convocation, and they started the year chanting, we are still Penn State. The identity of this campus is being defined and reworked. They're working things out. They, they proudly hold on to the name of their university as a movement, as a healing community that is making what was once wrong right. In Acts chapter 11, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads these new believers to take the message of hope to a city called Antioch. Now, Antioch was so corrupt and morally deficient that Roman writers actually claimed it was poisoning Rome, even though it was 1,300 miles away. That would be like us blaming New Orleans for all the crime happening downtown. (laughs) Antioch had a bad reputation across the region. And the believers said, we're going to go there and tell these people the new life that we understand that Jesus offers. And many understood and received that in Antioch. And as was custom in that day, um, from Jerusalem, they sent representative to see what was happening. They they wanted to bring validity to the rumors. They, They probably wanted to witness the fact that people in Antioch could actually change. And so they sent this guy from the church in Jerusalem named Barnabas. Now, the scripture says that when Barnabas arrived, he found evidence of God's grace. He was encouraging and glad. And so he went and got Saul of Tarsus, who's also Paul, and together they came and led the church there that had been starting. And they they taught and they led and they, they developed the church there. And the scripture says that these men were full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. In fact, Acts 11, 25 through 26 reads this, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. In Antioch, the identity of the church was being defined and reworked. And for the first time since the death and resurrection of Jesus, about a decade before, this community of faith earned a name. This was their story. We are now Christians. In Acts 11, the scripture records that the very first time the group of believers have inherited the name Christian is 10 years after Christ had died and was resurrected. They were defined as those belonging to Christ's party, Christ's followers, those who transact the business of Christ. We are now Christians. And there's complexity and beauty in this name. Some used it as a negative connotation, as they still do now. Some wear it proudly on t-shirts and bumper stickers, right? But just as Penn State defined their identity, this name, Christian, didn't come without reason. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't wasn't well-earned or or, um, it, it wasn't passed on from a generation previous. It wasn't inherited. It was fought for. It was defined. They became this group of people by doing certain things. And what caused the observers in that community to call them Christians? What what was it? Well, it certainly wasn't just showing up to the synagogue on Sunday. No one even knew what that word was. They had to do things. And can we say today at Erie First Assembly in 2012 that those same things define us? 
Could, could we proudly join the chant that we are now Christians? I believe that one of the core things that define those believers, that's what we're going to talk about today, is a few of those things that define them, is simply that they shared the message. They shared the message of God's redemption with the unexpected, the broken, the hurting, the discluded, the underdog. Those disciples who were Jews were primarily evangelizing other Jews. Hey, you look like me. You talk like me. We're from the same uh, worldview. We can understand each other. It's easy to communicate with you. I'll tell you about Jesus. Okay. But when it came to someone that they couldn't understand, they weren't even going to talk to them about Jesus. And some of the uh, Jews began sharing the gospel in Antioch with Gentiles. They began crossing this cultural line. They began taking risks uh, between them and people they didn't understand. And they began seeing the whole world as God's mandate. The first uh, two people recorded in the scripture that were not Jewish that became Christians were the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, and they were both Gentiles. But they happened before Antioch, but in those cases, the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius reached out to a Jew. They, they asked. They were the ones who said, hey, tell me about this. They crossed the line. But now, finally, believing Jews were going to Antioch. They were taking initiative to reach out to the Gentiles with Jesus' words. In fact, Luke is the author of Acts, and the, he, he's the man who's writing down this account when we read it, when we read Acts, Luke is the one who's writing it down. And he, actually, his name is Gentile of nature. He was non-Jewish. In fact, um, traditionally, Luke comes from Antioch. So some scholars believe that he was one of the converts that those people told, and now he's writing the gospel of Jesus down that we still read today. He was a product of the believers who reached Antioch. Now, remember, like I said, Antioch has a bad reputation. It's uh, filthy inside and out. And what's ironic is it was a city which Christianity took one of the greatest steps forward ever, becoming the religion of the world. In Christian history, apart from Jerusalem, no other city of the Roman Empire played as large of a part in the early life and fortunes of the church as Antioch. And I, I just can't help but believe that God is communicating something to us through that fact through the fact that there is no hopeless situation, that there is no place, there is no person, there is no, there's nothing too dirty, there's nothing too corrupt for the grace of God. If Antioch can be redeemed, anything can be redeemed. Anyone can be redeemed. So are we telling unexpected people, are, are people we don't necessarily relate to, people who maybe we don't understand their present circumstances, are we telling them are we crossing lines that communicate everyone is welcome, everyone? I believe that that action, that, that banner that they raised above, that they said, this is what we stand for, that began to define them as the name Christian. Fulfilling this mandate from God, particularly crossing lines of cultural things that we don't understand, leads us into really difficult um, situations sometimes, sometimes tricky moments. Um, danger and strife, oftentimes heartache and sleepless nights. We face the pain of true life much more often than if we just sat in a nice cozy recliner and showed up to church on Sunday. Because we throw ourselves in the middle of this mess of life that, that it just is. 
Joel and I met some really extraordinary missionaries last um, winter. In uh, they they work in India, and they rescue little girls from a government-sponsored sex trade. The government actually sponsors the sex trade. And these missionaries um, literally hunt down molesters and abusers, and they try to bring justice to these little girls that can't fight for themselves. And they're not like these Indian girls. They grew up in wealthy American homes where life was easy. Yet they, every day, fight for the broken, the underdog, those who can't fight for themselves. They do what they can to rescue these little girls. And they have four children. I think they're all under, like, 12 years old. And um, one very kind soul, encouraging soul, said, well, aren't you worried about bringing your children to India? Like, aren't you worried about them getting hurt or, um, you know, getting emotionally scarred? And these missionaries replied, my children are more safe in the heart of the sex trade in India, fulfilling the mandate God has for my family than they will ever be in the comfort of America outside of God's will. And I feel our missionary friends, Bo and Heidi, they can confidently say we are now Christians. They are doing the thing that God's asking them to do and believing in God's protection for it. So as those believers gathered together in Antioch, they heard of the needs of the other people. Okay, so they're, they're going to the unexpected, the broken, the underdog, the people that they don't relate to, and they're hearing their needs. And then they believe what it fully means to model who a Christian is, is they had to meet their physical needs. In Acts 11.29, you'll find that the Christians in Antioch sent relief money to Jerusalem. Now, the giving was voluntary and according to what each person possessed. And each member um, decided how he or she could financially able to decide how they could contribute to this famine relief because the people were hungry. And, you know, God says it's not about equal. It's not about having or giving equal gifts. He says it's about equal sacrifice. It's about you evaluating you, asking God where it is in your own life that he is working. It's about you giving as much as you can, all of your ability, as God shapes and molds you into who he wants you to be. We talk a lot about this in Kyle we got to quit comparing ourselves to each other. It's poison. It's toxic. And in Mark 12, people were passing an offering plate at the temple, and lots of people were throwing in these big, large amounts, probably very you know, flagrantly, like, here's all my sheep, or whatever they pour in those. And a poor widow throws two small copper coins worth only a few cents. And Jesus says in verse 43, calling his disciples to him, I love this, it's like he's having a teachable moment. Your parents know what that is. Come here, come here, come here. Let me tell you, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. And she put everything in, all she had to live on. And Jesus is just so clearly communicating in that moment, it's not about equal gifts. It's about equal sacrifice. The sacrifice that extends beyond the, I'll pray for you, which is good, but to practical, physical aid. They needed money. They were hungry. They needed food. They needed something practical and tangible. You know, I really believe it's not a supply issue. God has given us everything we need for everyone on the planet. It's a distribution issue. It's a problem that some of us keep more than we need. 
These Christians had the conviction that the church is a body greater than any single congregation within any culture. And this unity carries with it a responsibility for the well-being of all disciples wherever they are. It's not about taking care of number one. It's not about making sure that we have everything that we want. It's about who has the need, who needs the stuff, what do they need, and let's take care of it. John Piper uh, said, you are either a goer, a sender, or disobedient. Ouch. (laughs) Antioch's example raises the hard question. How much personal responsibility do I feel for the physical needs of others, especially the church in other parts of the world? Is it out of sight and out of mind? And what's the last time that this question crossed your mind? What can I live with less so that I can give more? Now, I know we can't meet every um, need that global news brings to our attention, but we can still do something to live out this essential mark of being a Christian. And the church in Antioch found it essential. That's what defined them. And so should we. All right, so not only did this group of believers share their faith with unexpected people and give generously to meet their needs, they were also full of the Holy Spirit and faith, which is what we've been talking about all series, full of the Holy Spirit. Um, these, like I said, these believers were eventually led by Barnabas and Saul, and they learned from their leaders that nothing can be accomplished or can be pleasing to God without following the Holy Spirit and having faith, even our best intentions. I feel like being full of the Holy Spirit, kind of um, the definition of that for me, it's like when, when you aren't forcing your way through life, it's this overwhelming sense of what our hearts crave, whether we know it or not. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, your soul kind of feels like it's home. Um, I grew up in a yellow house on Horseshoe Drive. I left there in, in eighth grade. My parents have moved since three times. I haven't been there in 20 years. I haven't even stepped foot in the house in 20 years. When I dream, I still, all my dreams take place in that house. I have no idea why. But it's home for some reason. Uh, My family built a house my senior year of high school that they live in now. I never really lived there full time because I went away to college right away and then I got married. We have our own house. We've had it now for seven years. But in my phone, my parents' house is still listed as home. Anybody else do that? Even though you never live there. That's home. Okay, that's where you're going. When I'm sick, I'm 31 years old. This is my second kid. When I'm sick, I just want to go home to my parents. <laughs> it's where someone can take care of me. I just want to go home. Home is the place where you feel safe. It's the place where your story begins. Other people can't bother you there. When you're home, you're free. You can walk around in your underwear. You can let your dog kiss you on the lips. You can have coke for breakfast, whatever. Nobody gets to criticize you because you're home. I once sat with an old high school friend, his name is Adam, and he was years into an adult life. He had been married, divorced, had a little, um, little girl, toddler. And we sat together at a table full of empty beer bottles and Coke glasses. I had the Coke, don't worry. And he always had wanted to go to college, but never did. He found himself, he was delivering water off a truck. I mean, he just wasn't feeling like he was going anywhere in life. And he just simply looked at me, he said, Nicole, I just wanna go home. I don't even know where that is. All our hearts crave it. We crave home. And I believe that what we really crave is being full of the Holy Spirit. Because when we are, no matter where we are, no matter what storm rages around us, no matter what's happening, we can feel that peace and that wholeness 
that Jesus is with us, that Holy Spirit is with us. And I believe that these believers in Antioch were full of the Holy Spirit and faith. They were home, even in a place that they couldn't relate to. And they had faith in the promise of Christ's ever-present fellowship and protection. And I believe those missionary friends of ours feel that same way, that where they are in India, even though it is sad and, and, and tiring and exhausting, it's home, because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. They were available to the Holy Spirit, As we're working through this series, we continue to say, I'm available. God, I'm available to the Holy Spirit and to faith that brings that Holy Spirit. Barnabas and those believers knew that if they followed the leading of God and continued to be available to the Holy Spirit, that they would always be, no matter where they were, in the presence of omnipotent protection and unparalleled opportunity. And I believe that's what defined them. That's what got their name as Christians. In Acts, um, the leader of these new Christians, Barnabas, is said to be full of goodness. Full of goodness. Now, goodness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Other fruits are listed in Galatians 5. They're joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness. Now, you don't get the Holy Spirit because you're good. Okay, you don't get the Holy Spirit because you're good. The Holy Spirit takes over your life and starts to make you good. The Holy Spirit takes over your life and helps you love people. The Holy Spirit takes over your life and develops patience. It sparks joy. The Holy Spirit does that. We don't have to do it first to get the Holy Spirit. And the scripture doesn't just say that Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit, but it's very careful to say he's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Faith is an action word. It's the action part of being full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Galatians 3.2 tells us, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, saying, did you, did you go out and earn it? Like, did you do 10 good things today and then you got the Holy Spirit? No, you, you receive the Spirit by faith in the Word of God. You, but, but your faith is something that you do, you believed. And then verse 5 goes on to say, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, does Jesus like require you to do X, Y, and Z before he gives you the faith he's asking or before he, he heals you? No, the right answer is by faith. By having that faith, we get to do that. And the Holy Spirit is received by faith and goes on being supplied through faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being sure, being certain of what we don't see, being sure of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, being certain even if we don't see it or sense it. I believe faith is the realization that we are once cut off from the heavenly Jerusalem and and willfully locked in the Antioch of sin. But faith is believing that God built a bridge between Jerusalem and Antioch constructed with the cross of his own son. This group of believers labeled as Christians also saw God's grace in an imperfect church. Those believers had eyes to look beyond the imperfections of a church that had just been planted and see the grace of God. Now, not everyone can see the tokens of God's grace in the lives of others, but these believers could. They they saw the the living embers of grace, and they wanted to fan the flame, not squelch it out, not see the imperfections first. 
And I believe that that grace wasn't so much like this big change in lifestyle or, or, the, or the more manifest spiritual gifts, though those are probably undoubtedly present, but it was the beauty and the power of Christ. The beauty in the fact that what was once broken, what was once lost, what was once filthy, what was once Antioch is now redeemed. I believe faith spends all its time looking for grace. Faith ha- has this kind of homing device for grace. It, it's like a radar screen that, that is designed if, you just, if there's just a blip on it, if there's the slightest motion of grace, you can see it. Or, or, or it's like those metal detectors that you take down to the beach when you lose your wedding ring, which never happened to us before. And you look all around because you're trying to find it before your husband knows you lost it. And, <laughs> and, and once you get to the tiny little fragment of grace, that thing goes off like crazy because it's finding it. And that's what you're focusing on. If we are to identify and to be able to say confidently, we are now Christians, we have got to see the grace of God in an imperfect church. Now, we don't have to worry about that in our church because our church is perfect, right? I'm glad you laughed at that. (laughs) God's intention is for us all to have a job in the body of believers and and, and to do that with great joy. And he never designed gathering together to solely be a blessing. Now, I hope it is. I hope it is. But you are here to be the blessing. So when those thoughts and those comments come out, like, well, I'm just not getting anything out of it anymore, or I didn't really like the songs John picked this week, or why is that pregnant woman talking so long? Or whatever. <laughs> Seeing the grace of God in an imperfect church response to that comment and those thoughts with this, where can I be a blessing? Where? At first, when you come to any body of believers, Chi Alpha as well, you're so excited because it's this bunch of new people and you make new friends and you hear about Jesus kind of in a different way and it really moves you. And you're excited, and you never heard that song before. And then you go home and you play it on repeat all day, you know? And then after however long, you, you kind of get used to the worship, and you get used to the message, and, and you know where you're going to sit. And, and maybe you know where you're going to go out to lunch after, and what are you going to order? And you realize that people here have problems too. And sometimes they hurt your feelings, and sometimes they sin, and sometimes they look at you funny, and sometimes they make mistakes. And it, And then it's not so rosy after all. And at that point, at that point, you are tempted to just get out of Dodge. Just leave. Well, I'm sure something better is out there somewhere, so I'm going to go try something else. And I really believe it's at that point that God wants you to stick around more than ever. Because it's at that point that the grace, those Christians saw the grace of God in an imperfect church. And, you know, we don't, we don't grow through feelings or emotions or hype. We grow through commitment. We grow through walking together. We grow through true unity, knowing each other's dirt and weakness and still loving each other. Committing past disillusionment means we realize that the beauty comes because we've walked the road together, that we've never let go, even when it would have been easier to. There's an old parable that Um, says back in the days when the settlers were moving west, a wise man stood on a hill outside the new western town. 
And the settlers would come from the east, and the, and the wise man would be the first person that they would come to the settlement. And they would ask eagerly, what are the people like here? And he would answer them with the question, well, what were the people like in the town you just left? And some, you know, a group would say, oh, they were, they were wicked, they were rude, they were gossipers, they took advantage of innocent people, they were filled with leaves and thieves and liars. And the wise man would say, oh, well, this town is the same as the one you left. And they would thank the man for, for the trouble that they had just left. Okay, thank you. And then they would keep going. They would move further west. And then another group of settlers would come. And they would ask the same question, what is this town like? And the wise man would say, well, what was the town like where he came from? And they would respond, well, it was wonderful. We, we had dear friends. Everyone looked out for each other. There, there's never lack of any care for one another. If someone had a big project, we would all help. It, it was a hard decision to leave, but we really felt compelled to make way for future generations. We have to go west. And the wise old man would say exactly to that group the same thing. Well, this town is the same as the one you left. How they viewed their past relationships was their scope for the future ones. If they hadn't seen the imperfect and, and, and understand the grace in the imperfect before, they won't see it in their new place either. And that wise man knew that. I believe that over the years, we as a body of believers had, we've had our share of tragedy. We've had our share of distrust. We've had our share of, of hurting one another. But the identity of who we are is being defined. It's being reworked. It's in progress. And if we can share God's message with unexpected people, if we can meet the tangible, physical needs of people, and if we can strive to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit in faith, and work really hard to see God's grace in an imperfect church full of imperfect people, I believe that we can confidently join the chant with over millions of believers around this country and this world and say, you know what? We are now Christians. Would you stand with me so I can pray for you? God, I'm so encouraged by our time of worship this morning because I believe that you feel so pleased with the way that um, we're supporting one another. And God, I pray that we would continue to strive to um, fight for that name Christian, God, that we could give it a good name. Father, not because we come here, not because the name of our church or, or because our grandma was a Christian, Lord God, but because you have come inside of us and filled us with the Holy Spirit and faith. And you've given us um, the compassion and the ability to reach unexpected people that we just maybe can't understand. And God, in that, you've allowed us to have the resources to meet the physical needs of others. I pray this week that each person in this room would run across a need that someone else has and do what they can to meet it. God, I know that's a dangerous prayer, but I pray that as it comes up, that each person in this room will remember that this is what we asked for and that we could meet that physical need, Father. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us be full of the Holy Spirit. We continue to be available to you, God, as you're working in and through this community of faith. And God, that we could just proudly and, and rightly and justifiably be able to take on what those believers did in Acts 11. And we could be called Christians 
because of the very definition of what you believe it to be. God, we trust you this morning, and we just ask for for fruit of your spirit, God, as we pursue you. It's in your name I pray, amen. Have a great week.